everybody and welcome to Talking Early Years. Good morning, this is the Jane. first in a series called Ordinary People Doing Extraordinary Things and I'm very very honoured to have my two first guests are both nursery managers with extraordinary experience of doing things in an ordinary way that drive extraordinary outcomes. It's quite a lot of extraordinaries for early in the morning but that's what they are. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get them to introduce themselves to you. And then um, we're going to talk about the tricky issue of food poverty. And you may wonder why food poverty has got anything to do with early years. But as anyone who knows me will, will know, early years is a highly political space. And food poverty is one of the highly political issues that we're facing in today's modern UK. And so I'm going to ask our colleagues to talk about their experience of food banks, community pantries, and why they felt the need to have food banks as part of the nursery provision that they offer and the complexities that comes with that in regards to how people feel about food banks and how we are supporting people by offering that as what as what is now becoming a kind of core essential service. So my first two guests are Alethea Finn from Thames Reach Nursery in South London and Cheryl Hatfield from Burgess Park Nursery in South London also. Um, and so I, I let the two of them fight out who is going to start first. But if we go alphabetically, <laughs> we go straight to Alethea, who must be very used to being first in the queue with a name that begins with A. <laughs> so good morning, Alethea. Good morning, Jane. Thanks for having me on here. So I used to work at uh, Burgess Park where we realized that the children were coming to nursery very hungry. We found this out when one of our pedagogy coaches came round and they realized that the food we had set up for provocations, the children were eating it. So my team and I decided that maybe we could start offering them breakfast in the morning and then also putting together some bags with recipe cards so that we could ask the parents to make meals for them at home. As this went on, we realized that there was a demand for this. So we started a food swap station, which then turned into a food bank. Extraordinary. And do you have any um, time dates for this, Elithia? When did you think that started? The food swap station started somewhere in October 2021. And oh. then by February, we had turned it into a food bank. Right. And Cheryl, tell us about your experience. Um, so I um, took over at Burgess Park from Alethea, so the food bank was already up and running um, and we have added it to it now so we also have the hygiene bank and the clothes bank as well um, and the need we have seen a real increase in the number of our families that are accessing the food bank even across the last six months some families that were um, maybe offering to add bits to the food bank before are now actually using it themselves. Wow. Wow. Because there, there is, um, I mean, there are lots of myths and there are also lots of concerns out there you hear in sort of snippets on social media and the like. But do you think it's true that everyday parents skip meals to feed their children and that often people are forced to pay, you know, to pay the rent or heat bills or eat? Yes. 
yes definitely we hear that weekly and you have the same experience down in Thames Reach Alethea at the moment at Thames Reach we're not running a food bank yet but I remember being at Burgess Park a few parents would come up to me and say oh because at the end of every term we were giving them a bag full of goodies to keep them through the holidays and a few parents will come to us and say because you were able to give us the food bank we were able to pay some bills so yes we did see that quite a lot wow and how do you um i mean this is a really tricky one but this is around sort of the stigma of of uh, you know food banks and there are two elements to that aren't they there's the people who say people are just making use of it and you know they can afford a smartphone and you know various other things but you know and then they're going to a food bank and then there are other people who are obviously quite embarrassed about the whole thing and don't want to do it but at the same time have a responsibility to their children how do you two balance that because that's quite a complex space to be operating in i think that it's easy for people to make judgments about who might need the food bank and who might not but just because someone was in a position to buy designer clothes last year doesn't mean that they're in a position to be putting food on the table this year um we we do have a lot of people that are maybe embarrassed to use the food bank or that they'll take they'll tell us that they'll take enough for the children um but they want us to know they're not taking for them it's just for the children when obviously we want to support the whole family um i I don't, I think Alethea would say the same. I don't think it's for us to judge, really. I don't think we have anyone, definitely at our setting, who is using it unfairly. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to make the people that are embarrassed to use it feel more uncomfortable mm. by trying to vet it too much. I agree with Cheryl, because you you cannot just look at someone and think that they are able to afford certain things. The fact that a parent has a smartphone doesn't mean that they are able to do other things. These days, you find out that even with the phones they have, they are not on contracts. It's pay as you no. go. And most often than not, there's no credit on the phone. So even when you ask a child is not in school and you ask, can you call us to let us know? They will most of the time tell you that we don't have credit on our phone. So having a smartphone doesn't necessarily mean you should be able to afford other things for your family. No. And like... A phone is, for some people, it is essential now. Everything's digital. Some people mm. would be very isolated without a phone as well. We might be the only adults some of our parents see each day. So it it's important. It is more important than just having it for the sake of having it. Don't you think that's really dis sort of disgraceful that we're creating a, a whole community, society, that's completely focused on digital access like there's no such yeah. thing as customer service now they tell you to go on the website yet we know that digital poverty is between 35 and 40 percent so yeah. excluding large numbers of the community and also putting huge dependence on electricity and digital tech yeah. seems a very unwise way of of operating what's your take on that yeah i agree we have we have um, maybe some families that are supported by social care who or um, have health appointments and everything is sent 
pretty much now through text message or um, email and some of our parents are missing things because they don't have access to a phone to to receive those messages and yeah in the past at Burgess Park you have parents who when they come looking for a place you say apply online and they have no mm. idea how to do it or mm. have access to it so mm. we would then sit down with them so that they can get the forms filled just back to the food banks for a minute guys what what is the most kind of i suppose popular food that is you know that people take because you, you often notice there's a sort of food box in a supermarket or um recently my dad died and he was gluten free for a long time and so we know a lot of people are gluten free and it's really expensive so i took everything that had not been opened up to the local food bank um so that there was a sort of specialist kind of area of gluten free for people who would access it but but when i looked into the sort of food bank itself there's a real kind of odd odd selection of food but and some of them would be what people would be objecting to in that there were high sugar, maybe high salt kind of um, substance, uh, you know, food and stuff. So I just wondered um, what you tend to sort of see people want the most of. And if you were giving an advice to anybody, what would you say to donate? Um, we, the usuals, pasta, rice, the basics that people can then add bits to, um, sauces, cooking sauces, um, and a lot of the fresh produce goes quite quickly as well. Um, so we we have um, a donation that comes through and that each week there is fresh fruit and vegetables and that tends to go very quickly. When you say donations, Sharon, who, do, who donates? Um, so it's, that, that's through the NDNA um, and I believe it's Tesco. They have an agreement with Tesco. We put an order through to the NDNA and then they bring us um, a weekly donation from Tesco. Is that what they call vitamin angels or is that yes, something different? Angel. No, that is it. And um, Anita, did we not also um, start a relationship with City Harvest? We haven't, we didn't start one yet, but at times which we have an intention to start it here. Because I know other leaf nurseries work with City Harvest and they yes. donate, I suppose, yeah. food that would otherwise be wasted. So a very good kind of sustainable model really in, in that. So if you mm -hmm. were the two, if you were, if you were both kind of going to suggest to people what the best thing to donate is, you, what would you say? We would say things like rice, pasta, cooking sauces. And it's very interesting. It's not just the food that the parents take a lot. We find out that they take a lot of uh, toiletries. So like oh. ladies' pads, toiletry, those are very popular. Toothpaste and even washing soap goes very oh, yeah. bad forms, go very quickly as well. Yeah, and we, we have children sorry, who, who, like you say, have maybe gluten-free or certain diets, and if the parents can save money on the hygiene products, then they can go out and buy the food that they need. I totally, totally get that from my own experience with my lovely dad. Um, 
when you you know when you go to a dinner party quite often you know when you say you work in the early years you get that kind of patronizing oh nice but dim kind of response <laughs> stuff when you actually sh you know get people to wake up to the kind of comp complex world that we operate in and you talk to them about food pantries and community food relationships and you know all, all of that how do people respond I think a lot of people are surprised that, um, like you say, you read things on social media um, and they might, I don't think a lot of people realise how common those issues are and how many people are struggling now, um, especially that you can have two working parents and it's they, they are still struggling to put food on the table. Would you say the same, Alethea, that people are surprised or do you think people don't really quite believe it and you have to persuade them? At times people people are surprised because I remember at Burgess Park, we had um, a parent from our Gambut nursery who decided to do something nice. And she found it very surprising that parents could not afford certain things. So she took it upon herself to make Christmas dinners for the children and adding gifts for the families. Yeah, but at times we take for granted that other people cannot afford to do certain things for their children. Yeah. And in terms of, um, there's often another conversation that kind of goes parallel to this, which is, can people cook? Are, are they in, you know, do they have access to um, cooking materials? Because I think you guys both know parents who are living in temporary accommodation are in quite uh, tight environments. What do you say to that? Because like when I went to school 150 years ago and <laughs> maybe when you went to school more recently, we were learned, we were taught to cook basics. You know, we were taught to cook basics and um, and then that all went because, you know, education decided there was they were far too grand to be thinking about cooking and basic stuff like how do you run a family home and stuff when we're all going to end up having to do this. And they stopped it all and they were then bringing it back. And um, in, I think they used to call it food technology. And I remember talking to people and they'd say, oh, yeah, it means how to put a few bits on top of a pizza base. But uh, have you seen any changes in in that and, and, you know, in your own children learning? And and have you sort of do you think we should be doing more about supporting people to learn to cook? even though it's not really our world. I think we should and we should be having some classes for parents because even here at Thamesmead we've got a parent who just yesterday came to me and said oh we had a play and stay so she brought her son and she said oh I gave Liam a sandwich and he won't eat it and I was like why he goes because um everything you give him here is cooked from scratch so he's now getting used to food that is cooked and I can't cook and I found that very sad that she can't cook, but now her child is having cooked meals at nursery. So now she's going to have to find a way to learn to cook. So yes, I think it, we should bring that back so that it would encourage parents. It would also help them to learn how to make easy and healthy dishes for their children. I guess that's one of the things we're trying to do with the Chef Academy, isn't it? Is to kind of rebuild yes. that out. Um, is that yeah. an experience you also have, Cheryl? 
Yes, yeah, and we, we actually had Sean, who leads the Chef Academy, come and do a workshop with our parents, and uh -huh. some of the parents came back in afterwards and they admitted that they they understand that their children don't eat certain things, vegetables mainly, because they haven't been exposed to them at home, they haven't had the opportunity to try them, and they were quite surprised at the things that their children did eat when it was prepared in the right way and when they were involved in the cooking process as well. Um, so that was quite, I think, an eye-opener for some of them. But as you say, some of them just, even with the best will in the world, they don't have the means to, to cook at home. We have um, a significant increase in children who are living in hotels at the moment. Wow. So are you thinking that you might um, do things slightly differently in your food pantries then? to kind of accommodate that? What what changes might you make to make that more accessible? Yes, that is something that we, we have been discussing, what we can what we can provide for um, families that don't have means to any, they might not even have a microwave, um, wow. but with it still being healthy or as healthy as we can, um, but that, that's an ongoing conversation at the moment. Wow. It's quite scary, isn't it? When you you know, in when you're thinking about 2023, and just just to conclude, then if you think if like looking forward to the next five years, because I think at the beginning Alethea said that she first really started to kick this off in 2021, we're 2023 now. So by 2025 and beyond, what you know, what challenges do you see ahead, and like what solutions? Like what's our call to action here? What should we be doing? I think all we can do is carry on, <laughs> keep looking at new ways to support families, looking at how their needs change and how we can support that um, and looking for, yeah, support throughout the community. I just before you answer that, Alethea, um, I just also, the, the thing that we haven't really talked about as well is, and it does worry me this, the the kind of quality of the food, given that we're also operating in a child obesity world and high levels of tooth decay, and that we know that that's a real problem amongst our poorest children, which is where we're working. Um, how how do we, you know, when you're thinking about your sort of, you know, like your solution approach, how can we address that also? Because definitely what I've seen were high sugar cereal boxes and stuff in the community bank, which probably given with the best of intentions but maybe you know if you're relying on that it's not really as balanced as you would like it to be yeah, so i think that we have to raise the awareness of sugar and salt in food so recently at thames reach in our prospectus sean has given us a leaflet that has sugar portions and all that because some of these parents genuinely do not know and even some of our staff so the awareness needs to be shown so that we can have a bit of workshops to teach parents about the sugar intake, the salt intake, and also introduce healthy eating. And also we can um, work with, at Burgess Park in the past, we worked with an organization that was providing toothpaste and toothbrushes to the children. So they were taking it home and we were encouraging the children 
to brush their teeth in the morning and the evening. We had our member of staff, Rebecca, do a recording of how to brush your teeth. And it was very popular. The children will come back and talk to us about that. So we need to make an awareness of it, putting out posters, making YouTube videos and sending to parents. That can be very helpful as well. Thank you. And that's a that's a shout out to the De Dental Wellness Trust, of which we did a podcast as well, uh, because the statistics on tooth decay in children under four are quite stunning. In fact, the main reason the child under five goes into hospital is to do with tooth decay, would you believe? Um, Cheryl, to give, give, we'll give you the final word on this, but you know, if you know, obviously, in the in in the, if we were to look down the down the lens and say in five years' time we wouldn't want to be seeing this kind of thing, the the likelihood is that's not going to be the case, sadly. Mm. <laughs> um, what would you say was the best thing people in the early years can do to um to support children, but particularly children who have got a really tricky start? Um, I think to try and have those open um, that open communication with parents and families is really, really important because, like we've said, it's easy to make judgments or assumptions about people and their situation or the reasons why they're in their situation. But it is a lot more difficult to really try and understand it. So um, I think that that would be one of the biggest things, in my opinion, is to really try not to pass judgment and to have that open communication and look at the ways the, the best ways to support each individual family my uh push to you both might be also that you've got food and you've got um toiletries and you've got clothes and i think you work with sal shoes as well to do yes. uh, shoes that's another great organization would you also consider having a book bank in there for the children to take home Yes, we actually do. We have started. Um, we were given some books from the Dolly Parton um, program that she's the the books. Um, yeah. The Imagination Station, is it? Um, yeah. So we we have some books now, but yes, I would say that that's um, it's one way that is if we can give them a book to share with their children. There's so many benefits from that, and it doesn't have to cost them anything at all. No. So food for the for the tummy and food for the brain, I guess, is what we're yeah. talking about here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the the recent research that Book Trust have just come out with also suggests that books not only are helpful in relation to all language and development, but are actually very powerful in bonding. Yes. Yeah. And what we, we did, um, we had some parents say that, oh, we, that they do the children know stories because they have them read to them on apps. So they'll put an app on the tablet and somebody on the tablet will read the story to the child. So by giving them the books, we've been able to explain the benefits of actually them sharing the story with the child. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Alethea, do you want the final word? I think what uh, Cheryl has said sums it up. We can't just make assumptions on people using the food bank. Open communication will be very helpful because at times too, these parents need someone to talk to, someone to listen to them, someone to advise them. So open communication is very useful. So the power of the early years is 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 magical, really, isn't it? And uh, yet 
society doesn't quite understand what we do and certainly right. government policy doesn't always support what we do uh despite the influence of people from the princess of wales to 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 beyond so your argument really is that right at the start here we can actually make a difference if we inform support and help parents from both their food perspective but then food for brain perspective as well yes yes Thank you both very much for livening up my Friday morning with such interesting conversation. And I hope other people in the early years and beyond um, have a listen to this and are inspired by both Cheryl and Alethea to do something positive. And a shout out to all those organisations who are currently helping us as well. That's all from us here at Talking Early Years. Um, our next podcast is about working with people over 50 that group of people who sometimes are ignored, but are actually full of experience, knowledge and um, vim, actually. So join me then to talk about uh, how we support and encourage more people into the sector who are 50 plus and certainly don't see themselves as old. Thank you again and have a very lovely rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you like what you heard, please share it or check it out on our website, leaf.org.uk.